Welcome to Radio Who, What, Why. I'm Jeff Sheckman. The word fascism gets thrown around a lot in the context of Donald Trump, as if he somehow were its progenitor. But the fact is, Trump is merely the most contemporary and American exploiter. Right-wing nationalist trends, fascist trends, are happening throughout the world. The underlying reasons are many and complex, but the response to those reasons and the way in which it portends towards fascism has been pretty consistent. Fascism is not some abstract idea, but a clear, definable set of attitudes that people like Trump or Le Pen or Nigel Farage know how to exploit and magnify. For all of us experiencing it, it's like a disease. Only if we know and understand the warning signs can we prevent it. And to help us understand this, I am joined by our guest, Jason Stanley. Jason Stanley is a professor of philosophy at Yale. Before coming to Yale, he was a distinguished professor in the Department of Philosophy at Rutgers University. He's the author of numerous books and papers. He's a frequent contributor to the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Boston Review. And it is my pleasure to welcome Jason Stanley here to talk about how fascism works, the politics of us and them. Jason Stanley, welcome to Radio Who, What, Why. Thank you for having me on the program. One of the points you make, and I think it's an important one, is that fascism doesn't have to win, that it doesn't have to be pervasive in order for us to be living in an environment where fascism has such a strong pull. Talk about that. Well, there's many points here related to that. For example, if fascism prizes struggle. So Fascism reduces political discourse to, to life or death struggle. Hitler's book is, of course, called My Struggle, and fascism has, has at its core social Darwinism. So fascism can reduce the political sphere not to a democratic argument between policy positions, but not to the giving and taking of reasons, but rather life and death struggle, where it's personal destruction which is at issue. Then fascist politics wins, then people forget the liberal democratic norms that are supposed to guide us in debate. And, they, and even, even those who are f- fight fascism end up having to, to face the reality of struggle. And then when that happens, truth and falsity become less important. And one's just left in a morass of us versus them struggle. Talk a little more about that personal aspect of it, because one of the arguments that that I've seen lately is that we really don't have to worry that much because fascism can never really come to America because it's too large, because our institutions are too big and too complex, and that it's not capable of being that penetrating. So my book is in the first instance about fascist politics and not fascist government, because I think if you look across the world, the governments that have employed or the people or politicians that have employed fascist politics have instituted very different governments when they've come to power. But fascist politics in and of itself is an incredible danger. And there's no question that we're witnessing its successes here. And, it's, and, and one of its dangers is that it does have an effect on our politics, when it, on, on the political system and policies when leaders who employ these tactics come into power. Uh, we're already seeing some very clear indications of the uh, of stages. For instance, Arendt talks about politicians who prize party over parties, by which she means politicians who prize the victory of their own party over one multi-party democracy. And 
there can't really be a question that the Republican Party in particular is is hostile to multi-party democracy. I mean, the gerrymandering that's occurred, uh, the takeover of courts. Uh, we have a minority of Americans voted for Republicans for Senate, a minority of Americans voted for the president, and yet we're going to have a hard, not just a right wing, but a hard right Supreme Court for generations to come. So we already have this uh, one-party rule uh, facet, uh, and the one-party rule is overcoming our institutions. Our institutions, the Senate, I mean, the Senate is, is an institution designed to block democracy. One of the things that you talk about is that there are certain things that we can look for, that there are these pillars of fascism that, in fact, are, are kind of the guideposts along the way. Expand on that a little bit. So my book is a 10-part definition of fascist politics. And so each chapter is a different an investigation into a different aspect of fascist politics. So the first chapter, The Mythic Past, is about the creation of, of a myth about a great past where the chosen nation, members of the chosen nation reigned supreme. And in fascist politics, you connect nostalgia to that myth. So you, people's sense of loss, which heightens in moments of economic anxiety or heightens in moments where, where minorities or, or, or sexual minorities or, or in the case of men, women gain additional equality, uh, they feel a sense of loss. And if you can connect that sense of loss to some mythic, idyllic past that you've lost due to liberalism and, and foreign excursion, incursions into, into your culture, then you can sort of weaponize nostalgia. Um, propaganda, ordinary terms have, their, have reverse meanings. The objective news is denounced as die Lugenpresse, the lying press, as Goebbels called it. Uh, the, the, the news becomes the fake news. Corruption, uh, anti-corruption campaigns, Vladimir Putin, Viktor Orban, they all ran anti-corruption campaigns, but they're incredibly corrupt. What is meant there? What is meant is the corruption of the traditional order of the, of the people who should be ruling. Um, you, you get attacks on reality itself, a sure sign of the encroachment of fascist politics, of the, of the grip of fascist politics, is the increasing uh, prevalence and uptake of conspiracy theories. So my first publication in the New York Times in 2011 was on birtherism, because I was aware that's a worrisome thing when conspiracy theories take off. Reality itself starts to become eroded. Uh, universities, the press, are denounced as, as advancing liberal ideology. Goebbels says uh, the, the bourgeois, will ne the, the ordinary burger will never vote for us so, uh, unless he is made to fear, that so, uh, uh, fear the, uh, the communists. So we have to create hysterical fear. The, the Nazis painted the ordinary Social Democratic Party as Marxists. And so whenever you find ordinary... Democ uh, liberal positions denounced, uh, or pro ordinary progressive positions denounced as Marxist or communist, then you know that people are employing fascist politics. Uh, victimhood, that's a very important one. Cha one of the chapters is on victimhood. Uh, when the dominant group is meant to feel like a victim, so the Heritage Foundation recently sent out a mailing saying, you know, unless you fight now, we won't have any more Christian judges in America. 
so when the dominant in, in moments where fascist politics is ascendant, the most dominant groups in society feel that they are its greatest victims. Uh, so, uh, so then uh, the law and order, fascist politics is always a law and order politics, but like the inversion of meaning that is so characteristic of fascist movements, law and order means something different. Jeff Sessions said of Trump, you can tell by his reaction to the Central Park Five case that he'll be a law and order president. But Trump said they shouldn't have been exonerated and they shouldn't have been paid even if they're innocent. So what does law and order there mean? It doesn't mean rectifying injustices. It means the outgroup are, by their nature, lawless. Sexual anxiety is another pillar. It's always the case that fascist movements paint the outgroup as rape threats. Uh, they, they raise hysteria about foreigners as raping the in-group women. Uh, so we've seen this in Myanmar. We see it in India. We see it all across the world that we saw it. We see it. The United States has a long history of all these aspects with our history of lynching of black men uh, on baseless grounds that they were rape threats to white women. Uh, sec uh, Sexual minority, so the, the fr fascism attacks freedom, and the freedom to intermarry is a freedom, the freedom to marry, the gender, uh, gay rights is a freedom, so fascism raises panic about gay rights, about intermarriage, um, because it solidifies fascist values. Uh, fascism always takes the form of attacks on cities, the real rural values, the heartland, the heart, the real, real America or real Germany are, are, are the values of the heartland. And the cities are, are infested with the hated minorities. In, in Germany, the, in Vienna, Hitler talks about how in Vienna, in Austria, uh, there are Jews, Jews, and more Jews. In the United States, the word inner city is used as a code for place where black Americans live. Um, and finally, social Darwinism, the idea that the outgroup is always lazy and criminal. Does history give us any indication of the, of the sort of socioeconomic underpinnings that give rise to, to the perfect storm of these things coming together? Well, we face another time at which there's a reaction against globalization. So we have a perfect storm across the world, these far-right nationalist movements, these fascist movements are all interlinked. I mean, from Israel to Russia to Hungary, Poland, Austria, United States, they're, they're all linked, uh, India. And, uh, and so there's some kind of reaction against globalization. This is true. On the other hand, it would be very hard to pin the global reaction to globalization, as it were, <laughs> paradoxically, uh, to uh, to a specific economic moment. I was in Berlin in May, and uh, Alternative für Deutschland, the far-right uh, German uh, movement, there was a march of Alternative für Deutschland in the streets of Berlin. And a young German who, together with me, was, was a counter-protester, turned to me and said, in school we learned that the Nazis came to power because of economic cataclysm and the Great Depression. But the economy is great, and look, Nazis... So, you know, Bavaria has long held uh, economic, Bavaria has been long a place of great economic um, power, and the far-right far sentiments are very powerful there. Poland, the civic platform, 
in Poland was uh, had had increased GDP. Po- Poland's economy was booming, and yet they were overcome by extreme by by a fascist party, Law and Justice. Sixty thousand people marched through the streets of Warsaw, chanting "Pure Blood." This was not because of economic anxiety. And what? do we see in terms of the forces and the effectiveness of forces to push back against this? And, and, and what has been the most effective historically? Uh, the most effective historically, um, that's a great question. <laughs> um, we're seeing what Fintan O'Toole has called trial balloons for fascism being, being floated. And there doesn't seem to be the kind of moral outrage one would hope for in these cases. Um, but I think that we can gain guidance from the poem on the wall of the Holocaust uh, Memorial. First, they came for the socialists, and then I did not speak up because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists, and I did not speak up because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and then I did not speak up because I was not a Jew. And then they came for me, but there was no one left to speak for me. So. First, what one learns from that is the targets of fascist politics, socialists, labor unions, minorities. Those are the targets. And the the poem correctly instructs us at every stage, look to see who's targeted, protect the targets. Does fascism move differently or come to be differently in a democratic environment? All fascists, uh, um, not all, but fascist movements very often win by democratic elections. <laughs> I mean, look at Orban, look at Hitler. Uh, I mean, fascism campaigns against democracy. Fascism campaigns against multi-party, multi-ethnic democracy, representing it as by its nature corrupt. I mean, and it exploits the freedoms of democracy. That's Goebbels' comment. It would be the greatest joke of democracy that its freedoms led to the, the victory of its worst enemy. That's exactly seems to be the case, and that was really the point, that, that fascism seems to come more effectively within a democratic environment. Plato warned us of, of this in Book 8. This, we are literally reliving the history of political philosophy here. I mean, uh, the, Plato's warning about democracy in Book 8 of the Republic is that it will lead to a demagogue using freedom of speech to sow fear, representing himself as the people's protector, and seize power and end democracy. It's why democracy never took root until very recently. Uh, Even Rousseau is very clear about this in the social contract. He says, people mock the system I here defend because they say what a magician with words from Paris or London would just bewitch the masses. And Rousseau urges us that you cannot have this system unless you have democratic values inculcated by equality, a democratic education system, and, well, most of all, equality, because the, the threat is resentment. When you have large inequalities, and here the economy comes in, when you have large inequalities, you breed resentment. And resentment is the feeding ground for the fascist flame. Talk a little bit more about this idea, and, and, and it's so pervasive in this, and, and maybe it's even at the very core, this, this mythic past idea. The mythic past is, is a, a very powerful engine of the emotion of nostalgia. And so 
when you have moments where people feel a loss, when the, especially when the dominant group feels a loss, then you, you need a vehicle where you can sort of make that concrete, where you can make the feeling of loss concrete. When, for example, feminism arises and pushes for equal rights for women, when uh, oppressed minorities uh, ask for more space in the public domain, that feels to people like a loss. And so you need a concrete way of, of accentuating the feeling of loss. And then you need, to, you need a, a mass movement that channels that loss. And the concrete way is the mythic path. You create this image of this wonderful path where the men of the chosen nation had their rightful place as heroes and were given the adulation of society. The women were at home fulfilling typical gender roles and there were no foreigners and you know, the men of the chosen nation dominated the cultural sphere. And you paint this picture and you connect the, the feeling of loss of the members of the dominant group that comes with equal, encroaching equality and loss of their dominant position with this very concrete picture of a fictional past where they were adulated and worshipped. It's interesting how language plays such an important role in all of this, in the use of language, and the, and the, the code words that become part of this. That's right. Uh, I mean, code words are a part of a lot of politics, of all politics, uh, but, but we had one thing we ha- happened in the United States is our mechanism of code words to signal anti-black racism kept anti-black racism alive. And so what we actually faced in the 2016 election was the demise of code words because Mr. Trump actually used fewer code words than other politicians. He, he just said it. Mexicans are rapists and some are fine people. Uh, so, so, uh, so therefore, thereby trying for plausible deniability. But he, he actually stripped the code words away for many groups. And that was really, uh, that was, a, that should sort of should teach us something. The code words were there to, uh, to satisfy what Tally Mendelberg, the Princeton uh, political scientist, calls uh, the norm of racial equality. So her idea is that there was a, a norm where, where you, you had to be, you couldn't be openly racist. So remember Lee Atwater's interview in the 1980s where he said, once you could say, uh, we run for office saying N-word, N-word, you can't do that anymore. That then by the 1960s, you had to use words like busing and states' rights. And then nowadays, you can't even say that. You have to, you have to go after pr- uh, program. You have to say cut taxes because that will hurt the programs that help minorities. <laughs> well, so you kept this system of racial code words alive that was then exploited by members of both parties. Clinton, Clinton demagogued on welfare, promising to end welfare as we know it, thereby appropriating the, Southern, uh, this, this, the Republican Southern strategy. But it kept code words alive. And then when Mr. Trump ran for office, he could speak without code words, and that sounded refreshingly authentic to people. Is there a cycle? To, you know, when we look at so many things in politics, certainly American politics, there is a cyclical nature to them. If we look at fascism, are there cyclical trends in the way it evolves? 
Yes, I think these, there are reactions to globalization. So uh, as my colleague Tim Snyder has pointed mm-hmm. out in his work, uh, the fascist movements, the international fascist, universal fascism in the 1930s was a reaction to globalization. Uh, right now, we're having a very strong reaction to globalization. In local cases, it's accentuated by economic disparities, but not everywhere. Uh, it seems overall it's a reaction to uh, cosmopolitanism, globalization, loss of uh, loss of the cycle of what Du Bois calls the psychological ways at wages of whiteness, which you could expand and, and think of as the psychological weight, wages of uh, national identity. And so, you know, nationalism is making a comeback. Um, it, it, uh, it, history tells us that it can lay nascent for uh, long periods of time. Look at Serbia, look at the former Yugoslavia, and then resurge with quite literally a vengeance. When you look at the current landscape, talk a little bit about what you see evolving over the next several years. Well, I see, uh, I see in the United States a one-party state evolving. So, uh, you know, I, I see there's, there's, if you look at the Republican candidates, there are now open Republican candidates, I mean, Republican candidates running openly on straightforwardly on platforms of voter suppression on ways to like eliminate our multi-ethnic democracy the supreme court is opposed to multi-ethnic democracy it's a hard right supreme court that's going to ensconce voter suppression measures uh so i see an anti-democratic backlash the courts are going to be taken over uh, 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 uh brian kemp in georgia his, uh, the New York Times calls him a master of voter suppression. He's the Republican candidate for governor. Uh, Chris Kobach is a Republican candidate for governor in Kansas. He, uh, his entire political career is due to a conspiracy theory of voter fraud, uh, every bit as fantastical as the protocols of the elders of Zion. So I see a one-party state developing where elections will no longer have any consequence, uh, where people will feel like there's no point in going to the polls because the Supreme Court will just invalidate any progressive legislation. Uh, the, I, I see massive voter suppression. Um, so I, the, the minority will, will be in charge uh, of the government and people will no longer see much of a point in voting. Um, so I, I see that happening here. You see that in Hungary. You see that happen in Hungary. Um, I see... Uh, I, I'm concerned about uh, the levers of power being used to dump money in the hands of oligarchs, which we're already seeing. We see that across Eastern Europe. Fascist politics is being exploited not now to, uh, for the purposes of empire, but to uh, cynically to tell people that their, their racial identity or national identity is priceless and rob their wallets. Um, so I see, an, I, I see if things go badly, I see an advent of oligarchy um, and, uh, and one-party rule. Uh, so, uh, you know, can, can we rescue, can we stop that? Yes, we can, uh, but the courts are going to be a significant deterrent as we go forward. Jason Stanley, his book is How Fascism Works, The Politics of Us and Them. Jason, I thank you so much for spending time with us here on Radio Who, What, Why. 
Thank you so much, Jeff. This is a wonderful, I mean, a sobering conversation, but necessary. Thank you so much. And thank you for listening and for joining us here on Radio Who, What, Why. I hope you join us next week for another Radio Who, What, Why podcast. I'm Jeff Sheckman. If you like this podcast, please feel free to share and help others find it by rating and reviewing it on iTunes. You can also support this podcast and all the work we do by going to whowhatwhy.org forward slash donate.